0: Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of The Show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. Welcome to The Show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, tackling the issue of mental health among teens through fiction— and what's behind the increase in popularity of regional Mexican music? But first, it is time for the Friday News Cap and some Voices from the News this week.
1: And the problem we've had is in, in, in some classrooms only the, the extreme left side has been presented. And so these present a,
2: an
0: alternative. I want us to be able to work together and, and, and uh, we have work to do here. Uh, for, for not just us, but for all of Arizonans. And that's what we're going to do. And tomorrow we'll come back and still do what we've been doing.
3: We are not where we need to be. 10 years later, as evidenced by the myriad of headlines about the lack of funding in our public school system, we continue to come up short. Something needs to change. The governor's proposal to increase Proposition 123 in its distributions to a whopping 8.9% is dangerous. And it's unsustainable
1: people
4: are moving here and voting here with their feet however we haven't had enough homes uh, built to support this growth and while we've had great policies at the state level on the local level we have seen a rash and a ton of new regulations
0: and joining me to talk about the new chair of the Arizona Republican Party, the resignation of an embattled state lawmaker, and more are Chip Scutari of SNC Communications. Good morning, Chip. Good morning. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. And former State House Minority Leader Reginald Bolding. Reginald, good morning to you. Good morning. So let's start with a lot of comings and goings at the state legislature this week. Let's start with one of the goings. Uh, Reginald, I'll start with you. Um, Representative Lisa Sun resigned seemingly very shortly before the House was set to kick her out. Um, was, was it surprising? To you, given how how she defended herself in the House Ethics Committee, were, were you surprised at all that she decided to resign?
2: I wasn't surprised at all. I, I don't think anyone was surprised. Um, uh, and I think that one of the things that you know the caucus members would say, you know, quietly, is that people, you know, really wanted her wanted her out. I mean. You know ever since she you know was elected to office, I know that there's there's been some you know there's always been some type of issues that you know that's that's plagued itself within the caucus or its leadership and um it's it's unfortunate um you know obviously her behavior was unfortunate, and I can tell you Democrats had she not resigned Democrats would have led the the charge to expel her. they were a hundred percent on board ready to go and ready to get her out the caucus.
0: Chip, the, the ethics committee released a report that was not terribly favorable to her, uh, found that she committed a pattern of disorderly behavior and violation of House rules, abused her official title and position. And some of the testimony that came out, I mean, she th- allegedly threatened to kill a lobbyist. I mean, this is that's not good stuff.
4: Yeah, she threatened to throw someone off a balcony, which is never good. Yeah. Um, so she's definitely needed of anger management or, you know, serious professional help and Um, As we were talking before the show, this has been a pattern with her, this disruptive behavior, this belligerence. um, And then there's no place for that at the capital, state capital or in your house or in any place of business. So – I give credit to the Democrats, the Arizona House Democrats, for working together. And you know, it seemed like a bipartisan push to get her out of the Capitol. So it's good for that. The um, Arizona Dems seem like they have to hit the transfer portal like they're a sports team because they lost you know, Representative Athena Solomon, um, Jennifer Longden, Amish Shah. So they have quite a few vacancies to fill. Um, I do think Jevin Hodge was a good appointment to fill um, Representative Solomon's uh, spot because I think he could be a, a rising star in the Dem party. and. I'd love to get Reginald's take on this, but maybe there's some you know, uh, hope for new blood and new voices at the Capitol on the Dem side.
0: Yeah. I mean, how much of it, Reginald, when you – I mean, we talk about some of these Democrats. Obviously, Representative Sun is a different story. But the other three all basically said in some variation, the, the grass is greener somewhere else, right? Like this isn't enjoyable. It's deadlocked. It's not fun. We can be more productive outside the Capitol that seems like it's kind of a problem.
2: No, I mean, it is a problem. When you look at, you know, uh, Representative Shaw, Longden and Salmon, you know, they all, you know, were um, effective and what they did with the constituent basis that they represented, you know. Um, and, and I think that, when they're saying that, hey, the Capitol is in gridlock, we can we feel like we can actually do a better job of affecting change in Arizona from outside of the Capitol. It is a, something that we need to, you know, look back at and say, how can we change the dynamics of what's happening at the legislature? Um, but with that said, you know, when you're trying to impact, you know, wide scale statewide policy changes, the legislature is a place that you want to be. And I, I'm hopeful that there's going to be some. Uh, you know, great folks will be able to fill the shoes of those folks, and I think Jevin Hodge absolutely is a, is a rising star in the Democratic Party, and I and I and I'm just really glad that he he's he was you know got the seat. I
4: I think this calls for again. I've said this on the show many times, but we need to raise the salary for state lawmakers. It's still twenty four thousand yeah. dollars, which is tough to live on. You know, I think a you know a livable wage of fifty to sixty thousand. You'd get a different, uh, maybe uh, more w- widespread, you know, good talent to go to work down there, but doing it for twenty four thousand dollars a year when you have basically January to June where you're down there completely, it's tough to run a business. It's tough to work for mm-hmm. you know, an employer. Um, I think it's high time that there should be a bipartisan push to get something on the statewide ballot to give these folks, you know, whether left,
0: right, or center, a, a big pay raise. Reginald, Katie Hobbs, Governor Hobbs has made made it pretty clear that it is one of her goals to flip one or both of the legislative chambers. Democrats have been talking about this for a very long time. I wonder, though, if the, a number of resignations now, is that an indication that maybe Democrats aren't so optimistic of that happening after this year's election?
2: No, I wouldn't put a, a correlation between, you know, the resignations and, and the efforts to flip the chamber. I, I think every uh, resignation that you saw, it was for a good reason. You know, we talk about Rep Salman, you know, she has been leading, you know, repro- reproductive, you know, justice rights. Um, you know, I mean, Shaw, he feels like he has a really good chance in Congress, which, mm-hmm. which I think he does, uh, you know, to win that race Um, and, and uh, CD1. And then also uh, Rep Like she's been a strong advocate, you know, when it comes to protecting, you know, community health clinics and families. So I, I think there's different cases there but with that said that if they if there's going to be strong policy changes that the governor wants to implement there is no she has no way to do that outside of flipping you know one or both of these chambers because we've seen the gridlock that took that took place last year and and we're starting to see that again this year
0: Chip, speaking of comings and goings, the state Republican Party had a bit of that over the last week or so, with Jeff DeWitt last week resigning after, of course, the uh, leaked audio recording from Carrie Lake of a conversation that they'd had some months before. On Saturday, the party met and uh, voted for Gina Swoboda to be the new chair of the party. Um, What's your impression of, of her as a leader? And I guess what challenges do you think she will have to deal with coming in and taking over this new position? Well, first, it was kind of sad to me
4: as someone who covered politics in Arizona for a long time. Those Saturday meetings used to be somewhat fun where you could, you know, talk with people, schmooze a little bit, hear what's going on. You know, they blocked the media from coming. It was very divisive, a lot of booing. Um, So I think that's where the the Arizona Republican Party at that level has gone, which is very sad. Um, And I think for those not fluent in political speak, when you see the words – I'm doing air quotes – Trump endorsed that means that a person, whether it's Gina Swoboda or whoever, is willing to embrace the big lie, willing to say that Donald Trump won an election. He didn't. You know, Joe Biden won fair and square. Um, so I think whenever you see those two words Trump endorse, you have to put in your mind, you know, whether you're you know, a Republican or Democrat, that that means you're willing to embrace the big lie for Donald Trump. And I think uh, Ms. Swoboda has, you know, a huge uphill climb, not only with uh, finances, but you know, I, I saw her on the Steve Bannon podcast talking about how they're going to, you know, find election irregularities. And you know, she started a nonprofit called Veteran, uh, Voter Reference Foundation, which analyzes state voter rolls to find falsely, you know, false information. Mm-hmm. It's been debunked. Um, so I think it's just going to be more of the same with uh, her leadership. It's going to be about you know, election integrity, trying to overturn the elections, stopping different uh, electoral procedures. Um, but that's the way the party's going, and that's what they wanted. And um, you know, we'll see how this plays out in a ele- big, crucial election year for Arizona and America.
0: How much do you think it matters, sort of the state of of really either party, given super PACs and given the ability of you know, we saw two years ago of donors to give money, for example, to a county Republican party to get you know ads on the air and get stuff they to done, sort of bypassing the state party. Does it matter, sort of the state of a of a state's political party?
4: You know, it used to matter a whole lot more now for like, you know, presidential race, senator race, U.S. Senate race, a governor's race. It doesn't matter. What it does matter is, you know, raising money and also for uh, alleged candidates for getting out the vote for those. So like it's, down we, ballot. Type yeah, votes, when we were yeah. talking about down ballot, if you know, the Dems can either turn over the state house or flip the state house and flip the state Senate, that's where it matters. Um, but for Joe or Jane Sixpack on the street, they don't really know who the Arizona Republican, or Dem, uh, Arizona Republican or Dem Party chair is and nor do they care. So it's it's you know, they'll find other ways. Both political parties will find other ways around that to raise money and to funnel uh, cash to their to candidates.
0: Hey, Rachel, what do you what do you think? I mean, does it really matter like for Democrats who are trying to win races like Republicans are like, does it matter if the other party is sort of in a state of flux? Well, you know
2: what? When when Democrats saw that Gina Sabota was elected chair, you know, I, we quietly stood back and just clapped our hands and said, look, uh, this is a continuance of what we've seen out of the, the state GOP for the last several cycles. You know, um, and what we're seeing is that the more extreme that you're having a Republican Party, the more extreme candidates that are going to win these primaries and which makes most of these races that are in competitive districts um, or districts that lean right, all winnable for Democrats. So, you know, I, I remember, I, uh, you know, many moons ago uh, sitting sitting at, at the state <laughs> legislature uh, testifying was Gina Sabota on, you know, election irregularities. And, you know, now she's also I think it's important to note she also works for the Senate um, uh, Republicans, um, you know, covering, you know, all of their election the elections policies. committee right? yeah, elections committee. So. Um, th- this is, uh, you know, Democrats know that you know by having someone really extreme is going to make it more difficult for institutional Republican donors to put their money into parties. I, I would say this: I do think parties matter when it comes to uh, coordination across, um, you know, several candidates, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a okay. local, state, federal. But ultimately, as you mentioned, no one on the street really knows who their the chair of either party is. But once
4: again, this shows that Donald Trump is not only running his campaign, but pretty much. Every swing state uh, infrastructure, which is a big deal um, back in you know, 10, 15 years ago, five years ago, um, whether the president was a Republican or Democrat, they weren't getting involved at this level to make sure they had their endorsed people in, in charge. And it says, I think, uh, um, you know, sends a message to moderate Republicans like myself. I guess I'm a raging rhino now. I don't know what to consider myself <laughs> that basically this isn't what you know, we're not here for you. And, that, and if you listen to Gina Swoboda talk. It was all about election integrity, election irregularities, nothing about K-12 schools, which I care about for my kids, nothing about health care, nothing about affordable housing, nothing about private sector for a small business owner. It was all about election irregularities.
0: Well, and interestingly, all of the candidates – I mean Jeff DeWitt worked for Trump, both on his campaign yeah. and in his administration. The other candidates were all supporters of former President Trump. So it's not like you had sort of the Trump wing mm-hmm. and another wing of the party going for the chairmanship. It was all sort of varying degrees of support for the former president.
4: Yeah. And I don't know Jeff to do it well. I've met him a couple of times on you know in TV studios. Seems like a pretty nice guy. He seemed like maybe the one person in the state Republican apparatus of Arizona that could thread the needle between being a MAGA guy also reaching out to, you know, common centrist Republicans. Hmm. He kind of had that um, everyman quality to him. And uh, so uh, I think Gina Swoboda, I don't think she has that same type of personality or persona, um, so I believe it was a big loss for that Re- Arizona Republicans to lose Jeff DeWitt at that at that chair as chair.
0: Reginald, let me start with you on a superintendent of public construction, Tom Horn, striking a deal with a, an outlet called PragerU, which is uh, founded by Dennis Prager, a conservative talk show host, basically to post on the state education department's website materials, curriculum materials that this PragerU has put together. Horn is quick to say that schools don't have to use it. It's just an option. But he's also basically saying that essentially schools, students are basically taught a left-wing ideology, and this is an alternative to that.
2: Yeah, so uh, Superintendent Horn, he has essentially legitimized and, you know, sanctioned a far right uh, curriculum and said, you know, hey, um, you, you can do it. His 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 belief that, hey, you know, right now there is an extreme left side being taught. Uh, I would say he's saying, well, we need to teach an extreme right side. I mean, when you look at some of the curriculum content that PragerU has, it is just so unfactual. It is just actually really offensive. Um, and I can say, look, uh, Superintendent Horn, you know, he could try to thread the needle to say we're not pushing it down. You know, school school districts, you know, throats are, or, But he is definitely legitimizing, um, you know, this this. I don't even want to call it a, 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 a university, a, a university a educational site or anything. This is just uh, straight, flat right, uh, you know, really far right, you know, curriculum that's just uh, just offensive.
0: Yeah, I mean, how much does this sort of give the the sanction of the state to put it? I mean, it's been online. Schools, in theory, could have used it before. But somehow it feels a little different to have it on the state education department website.
4: Oh, yeah. The State Department of Ed is giving it stamp of approval. Um, you know so i was driving the other day i believe i heard this on KJAZ where there was a clip of actual prager u material and it was a guy doing a terrible italian accent pretending he's christopher columbus mm-hmm. and he said hey it's you know slavery is bad but being enslaved is is better than being murdered or killed or something like that yeah. and this was their actual content so when you see the ceo of prager u say you know uh, schools are being hijacked by the left i could say as a parent of three kids who went through public schools in Arizona? I never saw any example of that. If anything, my super progressive, super smart twenty-two year old daughter would say it was too, you know, too far right. But uh-huh. um, that aside, um, there's never any. Um, I've never seen any evidence that's hijacked by the right. Um, so I think what I'm going to do, Mark, I'm announcing here. I'm going to start Swifty U, and <laughs> Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift are going to serenade students with uh, Schoolhouse Rock jingles. So, wow. I'm starting Swifty U. I'm going to launch it later this this afternoon. Okay. I wanted to break some news here. I appreciate on that. Yeah, so. Could could we get yeah.
0: you to do a solo of "I'm Just a Bill" right here? Oh
4: my God! Uh, conjunction Junction. What's my function? <laughs> what's your function? Of my favorite. Oh my God! So,
0: what kind of impact, Reginald, do you think this will have? I and mean, we have obviously no idea how many schools, if any, or how many teachers, if any, will actually use these materials. But like, could it what kind of impact do you think it might have on, on public schools here?
2: Well look, I, I think that there will be some, you know, schools, whether they're whether they're charter or, or not who will take this um, or you'll have parents, you know, who are part of these small groups, you know, you have groups like Purple for Parents and these other groups that have popped around uh, the valley that has really tried to push, you know, uh, the school system in a, in a very far right way. I think they'll they'll use that content. They'll push back on school districts whenever they see something that they believe is more progressive and, and say, like, hey, you need to, you know, have this other alternative curriculum available. Um, but I think this, you know, Tom Horn is doing what uh, – folks thought Tom Horn would do. You know, if you look at his history with regards to um, his views on students of color, if you look at his views on with regards to, um, you know, curriculum, he has always been someone who hasn't been quite, in in my opinion, like friendly to um, the history of this state. You know, Um, and, you know, he he often talks about Tucson and and, uh, ways in which, you know, Tucson has Really led in many ways, making sure that you know students of color are understanding their true history, and I think that's that's okay. Um, But you know where where he's trying to take the Department of Education is just something that I totally disagree with, and I think that uh, I I could see I could see lawsuits coming, you know, headed to the Department of Education's way.
4: Yeah, just from a pragmatic standpoint, as a parent. um this, you know, PragerU, whatever you want to call it, or if there's other uh, materials out there, as a parent, you care about what your child, how they're going to get into a good college or if they're going to go to a trade school, mm-hmm. you know, what the curriculum of the school is. Is it rigorous? Um, how are they going to do it with people skills and getting out and when they get out into the real world? This is so inconsequential. It's uh, it's a waste of time and unnecessary because it's not going to, I believe, help one child male, female, rich, poor, city, urban, uh, you know, rural, urban, it's not going to affect it one way. I I think it's a gross waste of time and resources.
0: So speaking of resources in schools, uh, Governor Hobbs this week uh, unveiled her proposal to extend Proposition 123. This was the uh, voter-approved, barely voter-approved uh, measure yeah. from uh, several years back uh, that basically took more money out of the state land trust and gave it uh, to districts. Uh, the governor wants to, to increase the amount uh, that is coming out of the state land trust, and she wants it to not just go to teachers, which is what legislative Republicans want, but for uh, other, you know, employees at schools—speech pathologists, librarians, folks like that. Also, school safety uh, issues like that. Reginald, we also saw heard from a Treasurer Kimberly Yee this week that says if you do that, you're going to decimate the, the land trust.
2: You know it's important to know that right now, just kind of painting the, the context for for the listeners. Right now, in Arizona, a report came out that showed that there are six thousand schools classrooms right now that ha, that do not have a certified teacher or have a teacher that's under certification. And you know, one of the things that you know needed to happen, you know, back in twenty sixteen when Prop one two three was passed, three hundred million dollars are being pumped into our schools, um, which our dollars that need to go to support our teachers and teacher pay raises. You know, the the reality is, you know, when it comes to the governor's plan, I think she hits it right. So she's looking to move the uh, distribution from 6.9 percent to 8.9 percent and mm-hmm. say, hey, we need to not only fund teachers, but the support staff. Representative Ju- Judy Schreiber, she said, look, you know, uh, if you think about our education system, compare our teachers to an engine in a nice car and then you know our support staff are like the tires. You can't have a great engine without the tires. Otherwise, you can't you can't actually move. Republicans are saying, "Hey, let's just pay teachers, support staff. We don't want to worry about them." The reality is, is, we want to get our school districts and our school system to a place where we can compete. We have to make sure that we're not only supporting support staff, we're supporting teachers in the classroom, and we're making sure that they have the resources that they need. Um, with regards to you know um, you know uh, uh, Treasurer Yi. Look, when you look at some of the distributions that have been made, when you look at the revenues that the state land trusts make, yeah, could there be an argument that 8.9 is too high? Well, we need to see more data on that, um, uh, you know, but I, we want to make sure that we're getting the resources and deploying the resources out directly to our teachers and support staff because they need it.
0: I, Treasurer Yee also said for the record that 6.9 isn't her favorite number yeah. either. She thinks that could be a problem as well, which is what legislative Republicans are proposing. But Chip, the reality here is that, like, the governor isn't needed necessarily in this process, yeah. right? Like, the legislature can send something to the ballot for voters to, to decide on without going through the governor.
4: Yeah, yeah, there'll be a, a lot of give and take on this. And I really do think there's um, this is one area where there could be compromise for the good of the state. Um, I think Governor Ducey and his team deserve a lot of credit for building a bipartisan coalition. I think it was 2016 to get Prop 123 across the finish line. It was very close, as you remember. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would hope Governor Hobbs and the legislative leaders get together, find a number that they can all agree on, get it to the ballot so there's no delay because this does, I believe, expire mid-2025. Um, so I think, you know, maybe Governor Hobbs could take a, a page out of the Governor Ducey's playbook and build a bipartisan coalition, which is tougher these days because things are much more divisive for the Capitol. I get it. Yeah. It's a big challenge. But – I do think this is an area that everyone can come to the table. Everyone can take a win. You know, everyone wants credit in politics, but they could say, hey, we're doing this for the kids, the students, for the support staff. I really do think this is an area where compromise can win out at the end of the day.
0: So when you talk about compromise, we also saw this week a proposal from uh, legislative Republicans on a number of housing bills. And some of these, to be fair, have have a good amount of bipartisan support. Is this an area, Chip, this year where we could see bipartisan compromise to deal with the state's uh, housing and affordable housing crisis?
4: Yeah, I do. I do think so. I, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of different bills out there. I do think from the city's perspective, I don't, uh, their point of view is kind of get lost in the shuffle a little bit because I know full disclosure, we work with a couple of Mm -hmm. cities, including city of Mesa. Um, They want, you know, cities are all about housing, affordable housing, population size, but they want sustainable housing, sustainable cities. And a lot of these, some of these bills, Don't have any, uh, you know, zero obligations for the developer to make sure there's access to schools, make sure there's a walkable, bikeable community. So, um, you know, and according to MAG, the Maricopa Association of Governments, there are over 100,000 housing units in Maricopa County right now that have been approved, permitted. But the developer, for whatever reason, has not um, built those houses. So I think we have to look at not just the short term, what's good for developers. I'm all pro-business and I'm a capitalist. We have to look at long term, what's best for cities. And I think cities themselves are better long term planners than private developers. But I do think there's, there's there could be a happy medium here. And I hope there is. But everyone's cities, you know, the private sector, Dems, Republicans have to come together and and hammer out an agreement.
0: Hey, Reginald, last year there was obviously a big effort to try to do something on housing. And it really kind of seems to have come down to opposition from cities. The League of Cities and Towns didn't like a lot of what they were doing. And some lawmakers also got on board with not not supporting this. Is there a, a compromise to be found here where everybody can at least be OK with it?
2: Yeah, I, I think there is going to there has to be a compromise. I think there there is going to be a compromise. Um, you know, the One of the things that we have to make sure that we're doing is making sure that not only we're listening to cities, but we're also pushing cities as well. I mean, when you talk to, you know, builders, developers, community members, advocates and, and, you know, who are supporting, you know, affordable housing, they are saying, you know, look, we have people right now that need housing today, of course, sustainable housing, and we want to make sure that we're able to get it done. And but the the pipeline that it's taking to actually get these houses built, the permanent prices, it, it, it is a very, very long process. So this is where we have to have a balance where you know cities are, you know, not only protect, protecting the long term um plans that they're looking to do with growth, but also recognizing there are current problems today. Um, that people are facing today with regards to housing. And we have to make sure that we're creating the conditions that people want to still come here and they want to still build and they want to make sure that the development can actually happen.
4: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think cities would, you know, if they were being honest with themselves, cities and towns would say we have to cut down the bureaucracy. We have to get this permitting process faster. Um, but I th- I think if you did a, 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 a you know a, a stock of every city what they have on the books right now. Mm-hmm. So for in Mesa, for example, over the last two years, they've approved 6,400 housing units, multi and uh, single family units. So I think there's a lot out there. But for whatever reason, there's a um, an obstacle that doesn't get from permitting process to getting built is a long lag time. We all know that. You know these rise in housing costs are you know for for a parent of two kids re- recent college grads it's real and we all have to work on getting it better make it more affordable for everyone no matter where you're on the on the uh, economic spectrum.
0: Sure, all right, we'll have to leave it there. Chips, Qatari Reginald, Bolding, thanks to you guys both for coming in. I really appreciate it. Thank thanks you. Guys. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, a look at the youth movement behind regional Mexican music. But first, a 15-year-old with pretty severe anxiety disorder posts something online that makes her mom worried about her mental health. As a result, the teen is sent to Florida to live with her father, who she hasn't seen in years, on his Internet-free houseboat. That's the story of Bryn, the main character in the young adult novel The Immeasurable Depth of You. As part of our ongoing series called Lit Squad, we're talking to the authors of middle grade and young adult fiction. Maria Ingrande Mora is a writer and content designer who lives in Florida. I spoke with her earlier and asked how she writes about something like anxiety, which some number of her readers also likely deal with, while keeping it authentic.
1: That's a great question, and one that plagued me throughout the creation of this book, because I have uh, severe anxiety. I've been treated for it for over 20 years. But that's my experience. And I didn't want to get too focused in on uh, the lens of my own personal experience and then alienate others who experience anxiety in a different way. So I talked to a lot of teens. I talked to a lot of peers. I had a lot of early readers who kind of helped give me feedback at times and the depictions of Bren, and I think the hardest thing of all is that um, folks who experienced this, myself included, there's a lot of negative self-talk. And I didn't want to shy away from that, but I also didn't want to overly focus on it. So it was a tough balance to strike, and it, and it definitely took a lot of revision.
0: It's interesting that even though this is something that you have personal experience with, you were cognizant of the fact that like your experience was just that was your experience and not necessarily the experience of anybody else.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, myself as a, um, a white person, assigned female at birth, middle class, I had access to uh, help, you know, in my in my 20s and 30s when I reached out, you know, and said to the therapist, here's what's going on. Um, I had a lot of privilege in that way. And I actually sort of projected that onto Bryn's life and started her on that trajectory at an earlier age. And so it was a big shift to have Bryn as this character have already shared with her parents and other adults in her life, hey, this is what I'm going through. And Bryn, similarly to myself, then has access to care. And uh, you know, I wanna be really cognizant of the fact that not all teens feel safe letting the adults in their life know what they're going through, and not all teens have access to treatment.
0: One of the things that Bryn's mom does in this story is takes away her phone. Bryn is somebody who, as you write, has more friends online than in in real life. I wonder what kind of impact you think that technology and the fact that so many teens have phones now and access to other devices and social media and everything that goes along with it, what kind of impact do, do you think that has on their mental health?
1: I think that's a really complicated question because there's a lot of research starting to come out that the access to information and, uh, sort not, I don't want to say triggers but just things that, that make you feel things. Mm-hmm. Kids are experiencing this at such a high volume and so quickly that they're not really having time to process something that they saw, something that they felt. And so that is a negative, I think, to what kids are going through with this hyper exposure to social media. But the flip side to me and one that I really tried to dial into with this story is that especially for neurodivergent kids, especially for queer young people The internet can help them find community in a way that they may not have access to in their local schools and their peer groups. And so there's this ability to find folks who you connect with to learn from them and to kind of circumvent (laughs) adults, which even though I'm a parent of teens, I'm all about peer-to-peer education with young people. And so I think it's wonderful that they have this access and they can find support and learn from one another.
0: Well, it's interesting because as you write in the story, Bryn has her phone taken away and, you know, that was sort of her community. But then she goes to Florida to live sort of off the grid with her dad and find somebody that she really, really connects with. So I wonder if there's maybe a a relationship between the way teens, at least in your experience, are using their their technology, but maybe using that to affect their, their real world relationships as well.
1: That's a really good question. And I think that, you know, the moral of the story was certainly not meant to be get off the Internet and you're going to go, you know, and find a better friend. Yeah. But what happened is that we get stuck as adults, as teens, we get stuck in these ruts of things that feel safe to us and we may stop taking risks at all. And for someone with anxiety, a risk is not jumping off a high dive. It's literally saying hello to someone that you've never talked to in class. And so this circumstance forced Bren to talk to someone who at first glance, if she had seen Skylar in the cafeteria, she would have had so many snap judgments about her and how she looked and what she perceived her to be that she never would have tried to make that friend. And so there is something to be said, I think for circumstances in life that push us out of our comfort zones.
0: When you are writing a book like this, how much are you thinking about how your readers are going to maybe see themselves in the characters or in the story that you're writing?
1: I think about it every single second. Writing for young people is such a privilege, and it's also something that really weighs on me because, you know, to me, when an adult picks up a book, I'm like, you're a grown up, okay, whatever you go through, (laughs) you go through Godspeed. Uh, But when I'm writing for teens, this is me as an adult having access to a young person's life and thoughts. And I have to take extreme care with that. uh, And I do. And I take it very, very seriously. And for me, what I was really dialing into was the sense of loneliness and isolation that you can feel when you are struggling with severe anxiety, especially as a young person. And one negative self talk kind of thread that happens is, no one has ever felt like this. I'm the only person in the world who feels this bad. Right. It was really important to me for teens to be able to see themselves in brand. And that's the feedback I've gotten, which is wonderful. I've never read anything that described the way that I feel in my head this much. And I can't think of a, a better goal to me because that is community. Even if it's just between the teen and the story, you have then created something that is is anti-isolation. It's, it's hopefully providing some kind of comfort. If not, there's not a solution. It's just comfort.
0: Well, I wonder if maybe part of the the goal here also is just to get readers to accept, okay, this is who I am. These are some of the challenges I have to deal with. And, you know, that's okay.
1: You're absolutely right. And I think one of the harder things in the trajectory of living with an anxiety disorder is the eventually reckoning with the fact that it's probably not going away. You're not going to wake up one day and say, oh, good, I'm better. I don't have an anxiety disorder anymore. And so self-acceptance then becomes your most powerful weapon. And Bren's journey in this summer is absolutely a journey of self-acceptance and self-love in a way and compassion. We have, as humans, a really hard time showing compassion to ourselves. And I hope that readers in showing compassion for Bren can turn that mirror around and show compassion for themselves
0: well maria thank you so much for the conversation i really appreciate it
1: you too have a great day
0: maria ingrande mora is a writer and content designer living in st petersburg florida an author of the young adult novel the immeasurable depth of you good morning it's the show on kjzz 91.5 i'm mark brody The Grammys are this weekend, the biggest celebration of the best and brightest in the music world. And this year, at least a few of those artists are from a new genre of sorts. Well, maybe it's an old genre that's finding a new audience. It's being called regional Mexican music, for lack of a better phrase, and it's exploded in popularity in the last few years. It encompasses everything from corridos to cumbia, and it's being driven by a new generation of young artists from both sides of the border. My co-host Lauren Gilger spoke more about it with Ana Maria Sayer, co-host of NPR's Alt-Latino.
5: It's interesting because at this point, you know, people are very much familiar with what is widely known as Latin music. It's, it's something that we don't really talk too much, or at least I don't talk too much about the crossover anymore of, mm-hmm. of Latin music into the mainstream because it very much is the mainstream. Like yeah. Bad Bunny is a household name. I guarantee, even if you don't know exactly who I'm talking about, you've heard many of his songs on the radio, in in bars, in clubs, just anywhere in this country. So regional Mexican is is what I would call for a while now has been kind of like the sleeping giant of Latin music. Mm. It's something that those of us who who follow the genre very closely, have been extremely aware of for a while. You know, I've been reporting on it now for a couple years, kind of expecting, awaiting uh, this moment where we would finally have this more visible explosion of the music. But it's by no means like this past year when we saw Peso Pluma and a lot of these big regional Mexican artists top the charts like that is by no means the first time that this music has done really impressive numbers it's more just the first time that a lot of people actually started very much visibly noticing and talking about it so I think Mm. it's important when talking about this explosion to note like this is maybe the peak or one of the peaks but you know you could look at music video numbers from a couple years ago and see that Cristian Nodal was doing competitive numbers with Taylor Swift Mm. so wow in that sense, it's something that's been around. It's just not something that people were seeing as, you know, comparable to a, a huge pop yeah. record, let's say.
3: Yeah. Okay. So let's define this for people who don't know what we're talking about when we say regional Mexican music, like what kinds
5: of music are we talking about here? So again, I mean, it's just tricky to define kind of <laughs> as, as I always talk about the label Latin music, right, which is very right. much a bucket term of a ton, of ton of genres. And then you look at regional Mexican music, which is, really not a type of music. Um, it's a bucket term. It literally means Mexican regional music. <laughs> I mean, it's like music of the regions of Mexico. Um, so that can mean anything from norteño to durrenguense. It includes mariachi in there. It includes, um, you know, basically any different style that comes from a certain part of Mexico. Now, that being said, there are definitely some distinct markers or characteristics or sounds to it. It is typically lyrically, it is a storytelling type of music. So, mm-hmm. thinking of corridos, for example, that is a style of music that originated during the war. It was designed to communicate information, to communicate stories. It's very much like considered a, a widely known storytelling mechanism for. I mean, honestly, the Mexican people for for many, many years. Um, It has a lot of big, you know, sounds. Mostly you got your 12-string guitar. You have a lot of times your big brass instruments. It's a very full, big... Um, boisterous sound, typically.
3: Yeah. Okay. So tell us about who is making this music, because I think this is also really interesting, too. It's really being driven by young artists who are doing it in a, in a really straightforward way. Like, this is not a nod to Mexican music. Like, it it just is. <laughs> <laughs>
5: yes. Yeah. This is not like, oh, really cool. You listen to my really cool pop record with, like, a, a cool, you know, cumbia beat in the background. Right, no, no, Right. No. Like, this is like, I am doing straight ahead my grandparents' music with, yes, different pacing, a bit of a different sound, different lyricism, but it's it's an evolution of that music. It is yeah. not a departure from. It's very much staying within that lane. So there's some interesting things about these artists. One, yes, they're all extremely young. Um, most of the corridos, corridos tumbados artists is what we call them. That's kind of who... Most people have been focusing on lately. So, your Peso Plumas, your Natanael Canos, they're all very young. They're all pretty new. Um, Peso Pluma had only been making music for, I don't know, I want to say a year or two before he really exploded. His first album ever dropped this past year only. <laughs> so they're very young they're very fresh and a lot of them what's really special is a lot of them are actually born on this side of the border, mm. they're born in the United States. So a lot of them are Mexican American kids, kids of Mexican immigrants who are from these places, you know, that traditionally in this country are seen as big Mexican communities. So a lot of farm working communities, we see Yanitza y Suicencia from uh, the farm working areas of Washington State, Eslavon Armado from Patterson, California, Grupo Frontera, they're from McAllen, Texas, from the border.
1: Ya nada me hace reír. Solo cuando veo las fotos y los videos que tengo de ti. Salí con otra para olvidarte y tener perfume que te gusta a ti. Prendo para irme a dormir. Porque verbo mejor si sueño que estás aquí. Si supieras que te escribí, me he mandado los mensajes, siguen todos ahí. Wow. Qué mucho me ha costado. Quizás te hice un favor cuando me pide tu lado. Ciao. So.
5: They're representing these very Mexican, dense parts of the United States of America.
3: That's really interesting. Okay, so do you have a favorite song right now in this realm that maybe could like serve as a gateway song for everyone?
5: <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, um, one that I would maybe recommend that is newer, that kind of like started blowing up the charts this year, it was kind of that first big moment of the year for regional Mexican, is La Diabla. By Javi. Javi is an even newer, younger artist uh, <laughs> who just broke out on the scene this year, uh, 19 years old, from Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs>
1: and um,
5: and this song was released last November, but really, really topped the charts uh, this January, so it's called La Diabla.
3: All right, so I wanna end Ana Maria with just a little bit about the I guess the what this means part of this, right? Like it seems to be this is changing the conversation around around culture, around the Mexican American experience right now and is and, and saying something a little bit different about this new generation of kids in that world.
5: Yeah, I think there are two really important things to me that are happening right now. One is that um, we're seeing a music that is very much like you said it is traditional. It's not a departure from, from anything. It's not incorporating certain elements. It's very much straight ahead. Like the music from Mexico, not being modified that is being widely consumed so that's really important obviously that is you know opening doors opening avenues who knows what could come after this music if people are willing to actually sit down and listen to straight ahead corridos tumbados yeah so that will obviously change the landscape of of this country of the musical landscape of this country in ways that i none of us can really predict but i think To me, the second most important thing is the social aspect of this, which we're talking about every single stage of this, when reggaeton became big, um, when, you know, the first crossovers of Latin music happen, every single moment when, when Latin music reaches a certain pinnacle in this country, I think it has huge social implications. And for the youngest generation coming up listening to this music, I mean, what I love to think about is I cannot even imagine what it would feel like to grow up in a world where Regional Mexican music is not embarrassing. It's not tucked away inside of families. You know, it's it's loudly, proudly. It's it's cool. It's cool to listen to regional Mexican music, to dance to it, to love it, to know the characters, know the artists, know the stories. Yeah. So, because of that, um, I'm just really interested to see what it will feel like and how it will actually shape um, a new generation of of Mexican Americans or Latinos in this country if if they grew up with that kind of experience because music shapes everything, especially I think for young people. It really shapes life, social life, how you perceive yourself is very much impacted by that. So the thing I'm really interested in in watching for is actually that is is what that will look like for these kids in the future.
3: All right. We'll leave it there. Ana Maria Sayer, co-host of NPR's Alt Latino, joining us to talk more about this. Ana Maria, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for your perspective here. I really appreciate it.
5: Oh my, thank you. I love talking about this stuff.
0: All right, finally, it's Groundhog Day, which means it's time to ask a groundhog what type of weather we're in for. Earlier today in Pennsylvania, Punxsutawney Phil did not see his shadow predicting the early spring. However, Arizona's very own weather-predicting creature, it's a rattlesnake named Agua Fria Freddy, disagrees. Freddy did see his shadow this morning, according to his Facebook page. Yes, a rattlesnake has his own Facebook page. That means we are in for six more weeks of winter, allegedly. Maybe we'll revisit the story when it's, you know, 85 or 90 degrees in a few weeks. And that'll do it for this Friday edition of the show. Thank you, as always, for listening. The show is produced by Sativa Peterson, Nick Sanchez, Amber Victoria Singer, Nate Boyle, Athena Ankra, and Larissa May, as well as Bruce Drummond. Sky Shout is our digital editor. Chad Snow is our news director. The show is created by John Hoban. Our executive producer is Amy Silverman. For Lauren Gilger, I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. Thank you, as always, so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Have a terrific rest of your day today, as well. Hope to see you right back here on Monday that's it for this episode of the show podcast to find out more about the stories from today or other episodes visit the show.kjzz.org and you can subscribe to kjzz's the show on your favorite podcasting site i'm mark brody thanks for listening today